0: Have you ever noticed that uh, when people first start dating, they're so struck by how many things they have in common with each other? That if you talk to them, they, they say, here's all the things that we agree on, it's amazing, it's like we agree on everything. And a few dates in and they've uncovered every point of commonality, every similarity, every shared viewpoint, every opinion, every single thing they agree on and they're like, this is the perfect person and we agree on everything. And then they get married. And isn't it interesting that after the wedding, you don't spend the rest of your life together discovering more things you have in common? You've already covered all that territory. You spend the rest of your life together discovering the things you do not have in common, the areas that you do not agree on, the things that you were strategically silent on before you had a ring on your finger, right? And then you begin to learn some things in marriage that you don't agree on, maybe some things like entertainment choices. You realize you don't like all the same things. I remember when Aaron and I were, were first dating, we were talking about things that we like, and I'm a big sports fan, and so I said, Erin, are, are you a sports fan? And she said she likes Syracuse basketball. And so I interpreted it as she's as big of a fan of Syracuse basketball as I am, and she wanted to get season tickets with me, and we're gonna go to every game. And what she really was saying was, I, I, can, bar- I can barely tie barely." tolerate any sports, but the sport that I can tolerate the most is Syracuse basketball. See, I heard, I heard something different than what I realized she was actually saying. Then there's the argument about uh, husbands and wives, you've dealt with this, the definition of the word clean. <laughs> clean, right? We talked, I was had coffee earlier this week with a couple in our church, and they were saying how they have very def- Aaron and I have very defini- different definitions of the word clean. And then this time of the year, here's where you realize you disagree on things, is the temperature in the house. It's interesting how just one or two degrees can cause so much stress and so much strife in a marriage. What happens when you realize that the other person doesn't agree with you about everything? This morning, the question I want us to consider is this. What happens when you realize God doesn't agree with you? What happens when you realize that God doesn't agree with everything that you agree with? What happens when you realize that God doesn't stand for the same things that you stand for? Or in some cases, that God actually stands against the things that maybe you stand for? As we continue our series in the Minor Prophets, we're to Amos this morning. I want to say a few things about this man, Amos. The first thing that sort of makes him unique from the other Minor Prophets is he was the first one to say about himself, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. He was given prophecies to share, but he would say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a shepherd, and I'm an arborist. He worked with trees. He was a dresser of sycamore figs. We'll talk more about that later. He lived in Judah. Remember, at this time, the nation of Israel has divided into Judah in the south with two tribes and Israel in the north with 10 tribes. So what's interesting about Amos is he lived in Judah, but he prophesied to Israel. He prophesied during the 8th century, during the reign of Uzziah in the south, in Jeroboam II in the north. And during the time that Amos was prophesying, Israel was actually experiencing tremendous prosperity, tremendous wealth, tremendous peace. Because the big bad neighbors, Assyria, they actually had their own problems. They were busy doing other things. They were so busy dealing with other issues that they couldn't really bother Israel at this point. So Israel is doing really well, and, and uh, Amos comes along. And the book of Amos opens with a series of judgment declarations. He is declaring judgment on people, and when I read through it, Amos chapter one and chapter two, it kind of reminded me of like parents handing out punishments to their kids, right? Here's what you did, and because of here's what you did, here's what I'm going to do, right? Because you hit your sister, now you have to go to your room. Because you don't eat your veggies, now you have to, you can't eat dessert, right? This is kind of what Amos is doing. He's saying, because you've done this, God says, I'm going to do this. And he begins to roll through a list of peoples and countries, and he, he mentions Damascus and Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Those are all surrounding neighbors of Israel who are enemies of Israel. And then the seventh one that he mentions is Judah, their southern the southern tribes, the brothers and the sisters. And I have to imagine at this point, Israel is like, yeah, <laughs> I like Amos. I like him. He's bringing judgment on all our neighbors. He's even rebuking our our little brothers and sisters down in Judah. And he's done seven, he's, he's made seven declarations. And, and most scholars say that at this point, Israel would have expected that Amos was done because he'd done seven in this culture at this time. Seven was the number of completion. This is the logical place for Amos to end, but he doesn't end here. What he's done, one of the commentators say, is this is a rhetoric of entrapment. He's drawn Israel in just so they're closer when he slaps them across their face. He's got them excited about what he said, just so that when he's actually going to say what he needs to say the most, they're listening. He's been, and in fact, if you look at a map of who he calls out before he calls out Israel, he's really circling Israel so that they're right in the center of the target when God speaks to them. What's interesting is that the Israelites, they're waiting at this time in history for what they would call the day of the Lord. And they believe that the day of the Lord is when all their enemies would be judged. What they were not prepared for was to learn that the judgment would fall on them as well. And Amos' judgment declaration over Israel is very different from the other ones. And one of the ways in which it's different is it's actually three times longer. They got it three times as worse. And so uh, this morning, we're gonna look at what Amos said to Israel, and we're gonna try and learn some things for our lives today. We're gonna discover two things, uh, two big ideas this morning. The first is there's two things that God stands for. And the second thing is that there's two lies that we fall for. There's two things God stands for, there's two lies that we fall for, and at the end we're going to see that there is someone who both stands for us and took the fall for us. So let's look at this beginning in Amos chapter 2, verses 6, six through 10. I'm reading to you from the NLT translation. This is the uh, judgment declaration against Israel, God's people. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust, and they shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security in the house of their gods. They drink wine bought with unjust fines. But as my people watched, now he's reminding them what he's done for them. But as my people watched, I destroyed the Amorites, though they were as tall as cedars and as strong as oaks. I destroyed the fruit on their branches, and I dug out their roots. Total destruction. It was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the desert for 40 years so you could possess the land of the Amorites. What are the two things that God stands for that we learn from in in the book of Amos? God stands for righteousness, and God stands for justice. For righteousness and for justice. God lists the reasons here why he's gonna punish his people. He's saying, I gave you the land that you're in. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you this land. But the bad news is, is you're not worshiping me and you're not honoring me and you don't care about the things I care about. I stand for righteousness and justice and you're living lives that are unrighteous and you're pursuing injustice and injustice uh, acts. So I'm going to hand you over. And 40 years after Amos prophesies, the Israelites are dragged into uh, exile by these Syrians. And let's look at what... God holds them accountable for her. Let's look back at those verses. and Let me just unpack this for us a little bit this morning. In verse 6, Amos says, you sell honorable people for silver. When I studied that phrase, here's what it basically means. He's talking about bribery in legal environments. So he's saying you are, as, as people who have wealth, you're using your wealth to gain legal advantages over people who don't have wealth. This is using your wealth as a weapon instead of a tool. Okay, then he goes on to say, you sell poor people for a pair of sandals. What he's talking about here is actually slavery and valuing things more than people. Imagine choosing sandals over a person, choosing my personal comfort over the good of others. Verse 7, he says, you trample helpless people in the dust and you shove the oppressed out of the way. Here's what he's saying. Israelites, you're using your power to your advantage. You're not using your privilege and your power and your position to strengthen and serve others. You're using it to strengthen and serve yourself. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. Different commentators think different things. This could be an issue issue of incest. Most likely not. It's probably more a, um, a sex slave. Or this is actually, back then, the Assyrians believed in cultic worship that involved sex with temple prostitutes. So this is sort of what's happening here in the Israelites. But whatever it is, they're not honoring God's name. They're using their power and its unrighteous behavior. Verse 8, he says, at the religious festivals, they lounge in clothing that debtors put up as security. So here's what would happen back then. If you owed somebody something and you couldn't pay them back, you would give them a robe as sort of like a security to hold on to. Say, you hold on to this until I can pay you back. And, uh, but the, the customs were this. Even if that person owed you their robe, at night when it got cold, you should give it back to them so they could have it on. And Amos is saying here, you're you're not even doing the reasonable thing for people. Yes, they owe you something, but you're actually using the fact that they're indebted to you to exhibit your power, and you're lounging around. I mean, the other thing is they were just supposed to hold on to the clothes. But Amos says what? They're not holding on to it. What are they doing? They're wearing it. What are they doing? They're flaunting the fact that other people are in debt to them. This is the sort of injustice that they're involved in. And then lastly, he says, in the house of their gods... So as they worship, they're flaunting this injustice. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. What they're doing here, by the way, is they're abusing a power that they rightly have, the power to levy fines, but they're abusing it, and they're stealing from those who have little to build their own wealth. So what do we see here? It's very clear. God stands for righteousness, and he stands for justice. He doesn't agree with any of this, and he's going to hold them accountable for it. And we have to notice, by the way, that this is, pers- this, this is about personal responsibility, but this is about much more than individual evil. One of the commentators said that much of Israel's wealth at this point in history had been amassed at the expense of the poor. People were getting wealth by misusing the poor. The rich and the powerful were systematically oppressing the poor. In other words, the people who had power had set up systems so that the poor were taken advantage of over and over and over again. So, what we have to realize is, you know, when we talk about issues like poverty, a lot of times there's two camps there's the personal responsibility camp, and then there's the systemic oppression camp. And God clearly, from Amos, says it's both. People are personally responsible for choices they make, and certainly people make choices that put themselves in difficult situations, but also there's systems in place that oppress people who are poor and disadvantaged. And and Amos is addressing this, God is addressing this through Amos. He's saying, I'm going to deal with this. God is for righteousness and justice. Now in the Hebrew, the word righteousness means a standard of right, equitable relationships between people, no matter their social differences. So no matter what your difference is with people from an from a, uh, ethnic standpoint, from a socioeconomic standpoint, from an educational standpoint, righteousness is a standard of right, equitable, equitable relationship between these people. And justice is the concrete actions you take to correct injustices and create righteousness. So what does this all mean? God is righteous, and he says that there's a standard of right and there's a standard of wrong. And it's not up to us to define what that is because God defines what that is. We don't define morality. We don't define truth. God does that. But God also says there's a right way to live with each other and to respond to those who refuse to do so. God stands for righteousness and God stands for justice. And as his people, we must too. So that's what God stands for, righteousness and justice. Now, what are the two lies that we fall for? The two lies that we fall for. The first one is this, the lie that you can be righteous and not care about justice. It's a lie, that you can be righteous and not care about justice. Later on in the book, in Amos chapter 5, God says this to the Israelites, because they're still doing the religious stuff. They're still, like, making their sacrifices and burning their offerings, and they're still doing all that stuff. And here's what God says about all their religiosity, verse 21 of Amos 5. He says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies, I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. What? God's like, I'm sick of your singing. I'm sick of your church services. I'm sick of your gathering together. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, look what God says, instead of all that, not, in, not to the neglect of that, but in addition to that, what I want to see is a mighty flood of justice an endless river of righteous living. This is really powerful. Israel's saying, God, we're still doing the stuff that your law says we should do. We are religiously active. We're doing what you've asked of us. But God hates all the stuff they're doing because he knows that they think they can be righteous without also loving justice. And they can't. God hates Israel's attitude towards injustice. He hates their attitude about imbalance and misuse of power. And he hates the way they're treating the poor and the oppressed. And the truth is is that still today, he hates our religious activity if we aren't making a difference in the lives in our society, the lives of those in our society who are disadvantaged. Let me say it again. God hates our religious activity if we aren't using the things he blesses us with to bless others and to help those in our society who are disadvantaged. Now, I was wrestling with this text this week for a couple of reasons, but one of them was because I was thinking how sad it is in America today that our society now is so politicized that you can't even mention things like caring for the poor, helping the oppressed, and justice for the disadvantaged without triggering people. People want You start talking about caring for the poor, helping the oppressed, working out for the good of the, those people who are disadvantaged, People. it becomes very political very quickly people draw sides and what you have is you have people on this side who are saying you're not you're not right you guys are not righteous you don't care about morality you don't care about these issues so you're not Christians and then you have people on this side who are looking over here and saying yeah but you don't care about justice issues so you're not Christians and both sides are looking at each other throwing stones at each other and saying you're not like Jesus and they're saying you're not like Jesus and how do we walk through this season by the way it's going to get a lot harder it's going to get a lot harder next year is going to be hard what do we do let me share a few thoughts And I'm not a very political person, but I want to share a few things because I think Amos is really, he's really pushing in on something here. He's making it clear that you can't be righteous and not care about justice. We must start this conversation not by asking questions like this. What does my political party say about it? It's the wrong question to start with. Christians, you have a higher loyalty than the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Your loyalty is to the kingdom of God. And so we do not start by asking that question. We also don't ask the question, what does my favorite uh, politician or my favorite leader say about this? We should be informed, but that's not the most important question. And here's other questions that we can't start this conversation with. What works out best for me? What makes me most comfortable? What makes me most happy? The question we always have to start with is this. What does scripture say? What does God have to say about what it means to be his people. And one of the things that will be very helpful for us as a church is not just this church, but the greater church as we navigate these upcoming years is to delineate between what I, what's biblical doctrine and what's political policy. So biblical doctrine is what does the scriptures teach and political policy is how do we respond to what the Bible teaches. And I just wanna say that people can, two people can agree on biblical doctrine and not necessarily agree on political policy and it's okay. You have to be charitable and kind. So two Christians may say, we, we, I 100% believe that God says we need to care for the poor, we need to take care of the oppressed, but they may have two very different plans for what that looks like, and that's all right. There's, there's room for that, and we need to make sure that we're not dividing over political policy when we're still joined together on biblical doctrine. Here's the other thing about biblical doctrine and political policy. The second must be informed by the first. Your political policies must be informed by your biblical doctrine and not the other way around. And here's the other thing. The people who don't agree with you, those people, those are the people that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to love them and serve them. And if at the center of our faith is a man dying for sinners saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do, then how can we not be forgiving and loving towards those who differ on us on things like this? Now, Amos is really saying here, that your relationship with God must change the way you relate to other people. It has to. If your relationship, if your vertical relationship with God has not in any way changed the way you are horizontally relating with people in your life, then you need to go back to the source and say, do I really understand what it means that God loved me and that he chose me and that he initiated this work of salvation on my behalf? And so what happens is once God does his work to make us right with him, we spend the rest of our lives doing what we can to make ourselves right with each other to live in right, equitable relationships with people despite differences in social classes, despite differences in political opinions, despite differences in economic makeup. Your relationship with God must change your relationship with others. And by the way, this is not just an Old Testament thing, this whole issue of justice and injustice. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25 when he talks about the final judgment. He doesn't say on the final judgment, God's gonna say, did you read your Bible three hours a day? Did you pray an hour a day? Did you give to, here's what he's gonna, here's what he talks about, the final judgment. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. And the neat thing about that whole story that Jesus tells is that the people who did it and the people who didn't do it, both of them are unaware that they, the people who didn't do it say, When did we see you that way? But even the people who did it say, When did we see you that way? Because they weren't doing it to earn their way into the kingdom. They were doing it because their hearts had been changed by the gospel. So what do we do when we see those who are hungry, thirsty, naked, strangers, sick, in prison? Sometimes we lean towards saying, well, you might have got yourself there. You probably did some things and you got yourself there and it's kind of on you so you should get yourself out. And is there some truth on some level to that? Yeah, but is that going to help them? Is that going to love them? Is it going to serve them? Is it going to strengthen them? Is that what Jesus says we should do? No, we feed the hunger. We give uh, drink to the thirst. So Jesus says, and then James 1.27, the half-brother of Jesus, James, he says this. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. This is what I love. Leave this verse up for a second. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means there's two things here. Caring for the orphans and widows in their distress which is justice, but also refusing to let the world corrupt you, which is righteousness. It's both righteousness and justice. This is what true religion looks like, caring for those. And in this culture, at this time, orphans and widows had no voice. They had no legal voice. They had no hope for financial security. They had nothing going for them. And and James is saying, listen, if the church isn't going to serve them, why does the church even exist? Why are we even here? This is what pure religion looks like. Let me give you some questions to reflect on before we get to the second lie. What are you doing to see God's kingdom and his justice show up in your world? How are you giving up power to lift up others? How are you disadvantaging yourself? Or when's the last time you disadvantaged yourself to help someone who needed it? How are you speaking up for those who have no voice? How are you making sure you give more than you take? What needs in your community are you meeting? Or are you even aware of the needs in your community? Those who are in danger of being taken advantage of Uh, Because of a lack of resources, education, a lack of family, a lack of health. What what is your heart towards them? What are you doing for widows, for orphans, for the outsiders, for the oppressed? You can't be righteous and not care about justice. It's a lie to think you can. Here's the second lie. The second lie is this, that you can have justice apart from righteousness. That you can have justice apart from righteousness. You know, there's many people in our world, in our country, who have a real problem with uh, right and wrong. A real problem with divine moral order, a real problem with any morality claims, and there's actually some really fair reasons because there's a history of an abuse of that, isn't there? Abuse of power is one thing, but when it's been done in God's name, it's it's much worse, and there is a history of that. But as a result, here's kind of what our society believes about morality and righteousness. Everyone everyone gets to pick. You decide for yourself. You define truth. You define reality. You decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. There's no God. There's no standard of truth. There's no standard of righteousness. And if there is a God, he only loves us. He doesn't care how we live, which is a very self-contradictory statement. But can you have justice apart from righteousness? There's a man named Arthur Leff who's a professor. He's passed away, but he was a professor at Yale Law School. He was agnostic, which meant he believed that there could be a God, but that you couldn't know him and that you couldn't know for sure. And he wrote a series of well-known articles on morality that were published in different journals, like the Duke Law Journal. And here's what Arthur left, this agnostic, concluded. And I think I agree with him. He said, if there's no God, then there's no way you can make a case for human rights. If there's no God, there's no way you can make a case for justice. Here's what he says, and I'm, I'm quoting now. He says that absent an ultimate authority figure like God, Absent an ultimate authority figure handing down moral laws from on high, there's no reason for any person to prefer one set of behavior identified as quote-unquote moral to another. And he, he created this term, he called it the grand says who. You ever have a conversation at work where someone says, hey, we all gotta go do this right now, and someone's gonna say, says who? Or if you're a parent, you've heard that plenty of times. Come on, girls, it's time to, time, says who, says me, right? you ever said that before? And this is what he's saying, he's saying, you can't live in this world where there's not a moral good outside of ourselves because what happens is, if I make a truth claim about morality, so for example, let's, let's say I say, it's wrong to cheat on your spouse. It's, it's wrong to steal your neighbor's Wi-Fi. It's wrong to root against the Yankees, whatever it is. But whatever claim I wanna make, all you have to say back to me to defeat my claim in a world where there's no God is, says who? There can't be any morality. There can't be any standard of righteousness and there can't be any foundation for moral outrage if there isn't a God. This is the argument that he's making. Here's what he says. He says, you can say all sorts of things. This is right and this is wrong. But what you cannot say is that one say is better than another say. You say whatever you want, but the one thing in a world where there's no God that you cannot say is why one say is truer than any other say. So Leff is saying you can't have justice apart from righteousness. And I agree. So how do we know what is right and wrong? And how do we even know what righteousness is? I'm thankful for our music ministry team. They work hard regularly to provide music for you, and I'm part of the team often. And uh, if you've not been part of the team, you've not been in a practice, and you haven't heard the conversations, sometimes there's some, some lively conversations about the song arrangements and how the song should be sung. And, you know, there's so many versions out there of different songs, and so somebody heard Bethel do it, and, and somebody heard Elevation do it, and so we're, we're kind of having a conversation. Well, I think you do the bridge twice. No, they definitely do it three times. And so we have these sort of, they're not heated, but just kind of like this is the way we think it should be. But we're all kind of guessing, but we also know that there is a standard out there somewhere and we're trying to figure out what is the standard, but the person who wrote the song is not on the stage, so we're all kind of trying to figure it out. Now there are, you know, it feels like a lifetime ago, but a lifetime ago I wrote music, and there are a couple songs we sing here at the church that I wrote. Now it's interesting, because if we're doing one of my songs, and I'm on stage, there's not as much discussion and debate, is there? They don't, they don't all chime in with their opinions. Oh, well, I, the, I think this is what the guy meant when he wrote it, because I'm standing right there. So they just look at me and say, David. How is the song supposed to be played? Like, what was it like in your mind when you wrote the song? And I'm able to do that. Why? Because I'm the designer. And because I'm the designer, I get to be the definer. I get to be the one who says, I, I made this, and now I get to say how it should be played. God is a great designer. Amen. The first way that he reveals himself in Scripture to us is that he is a righteous creator to whom we are accountable. And I know that this goes against the world today. But if God is the designer, then this means He's also the definer. If He designed humanity, He gets, or he de, if He designed humanity, He gets to define what it means to be fully human. If He designed things like sexuality, He gets to define things like sexuality. If he, defined, if he designed morality, he gets to define morality. He gets those things, as he's our righteous creator. And so we looked at him. Scripture reveals God to be a righteous creator to whom we are accountable. And this is so foundational to the Christian worldview. And probably you have friends and family members who don't agree with you on many different things that Christians agree with. And I'm, I'm telling you, it all comes back to this issue. If you're having a conversation with somebody about something, and they say, I don't think that's true, you need to re- do you believe that there's a God to whom we are accountable? And if, if that person doesn't believe that, then you might as well not continue your conversation because you don't have the right place to start from. If there's no God and if there's no standard of righteousness, here's what it means. Everyone can do whatever they want. Everyone can do whatever they think is right. Let the strong eat the weak. Who cares? Let, let one people group. Wipe out another people group. Who cares? Let whatever evil the human mind can think of, let it be carried out. Because who can say it wrong? Who can say it's wrong? And if you say it's wrong, by the way, it's not an argument based on actual truth, it's an assertion based on your individual opinion. You're not arguing based on something that's true, you're asserting a truth, and all I have to say to you is says who? So if there's no righteousness, If there's no justice and if there's no judge and if no one in this room or in this world will be eventually held responsible for what they do, then everyone gets to make up the rules and who cares how you live because you live and you die and you're not responsible and accountable to anyone else. And if that's truly what we believe and if that's truly how we live, let me ask you this. What chance does this world have? What hope does this world have? But if there is righteousness, if there is justice, and if there is a holy judge, then what chance do I have? And what chance do you have? What hope? This is why I want to finish this morning. Amos spends eight and a half chapters giving bad news. He's a bad news prophet. But right at the end in chapter nine, he gives him good news and I want us to see it. In verse 11, he says, in that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and I will restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things. Amos ends with this good news. God's not done with Israel. He's not done with his people. There's gonna come a day where he's gonna restore the very house and throne of David. Now how will God restore? How will God repair? How will God rebuild? How will God save Israel and all the nations? If there's two truths that God stands for, and there's two lies that you and I fall for over and over and over, what hope, what chance do we have? And the chance is this, that there is one person who both stood for us and took the fall for us. One person who stood for us and took the fall for us. One of the really interesting things I learned about Amos this week is that he was a dresser of sycamore figs. It's a very unusual detail to include in this writing style. So I think there's a reason why it's there. So I started to look into like, what, what are these sycamore figs? Sycamore figs were the fruit of the poor, which I think maybe is why Amos had a heart for the poor. Because the fruit that he, see, the best fruit back then in, the, in this culture, in this time, in this climate, was, was what would call the common fig, dates, and grapes. I'm thinking, give me the grapes. You can keep the figs and the dates, I'll take the grapes. But, but figs, dates, and grapes. But a lot of people couldn't afford those fruit. And for them, there was this other fruit. It was called the sycamore fig. What's interesting about the sycamore fig is that this fruit is actually like a mulberry. And here's, here's what I, I learned studying this. Sycamore figs, on their own, they would never ripen. If you leave them alone, they're not gonna ripen. That's why he had to dress the trees. And the way that they would ripen or cause a sycamore fig to ripen is they do two things. They would have to intentionally bruise it, and they would have to intentionally slash it. They would cut the fig open, slash it, they would bruise it so that it could bear fruit and that it could live. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve said, we don't want your righteousness and we don't want your justice, we're going to go our own way, God said this to the serpent as judgment. He said, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. God's saying, someday, the offspring of mankind, Jesus Christ, is going to come, and he's going to bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel. And Jesus was bruised, wasn't he? Jesus was bruised for us. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was more than bruised for us. He was slashed for us. By his stripes, we are healed. And Jesus himself in John chapter 12 said, unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it's willing to die, then it will bear much fruit. At the cross, Jesus was bruised and Jesus was cut and Jesus was lashed. Why? So that he could give us hope. Hope when it comes to righteousness and justice. See, Jesus stood for you. He stood in your place. He stood and lived a perfect life, the life that you owed God but couldn't give him. He stood for you, and in doing so, you know what he did? He secured for you righteousness, right standing before the Father. But Jesus didn't just stand for you. He also took the fall for you. He went to the cross where he absorbed the perfect righteousness of the Father in the form of wrath. And the justice of God, God's a just God, he cannot go without punishing unrighteousness. The justice of God that should have fell on you and should have fell on me, it fell on Jesus. So when we look at the cross, here's what we see. Jesus receives the justice and we receive the righteousness. What a miracle. What a good God. What a good gospel that Jesus would do this for us. And what does it mean? It means this now in 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our wickedness. I remember the moment that this verse hit me and what it meant. All my life, I thought God forgave me because I did something. I made him feel bad or I, made him, or I, made it, I, I earned his forgiveness. Or I thought maybe God forgave me because he loved me. I'm just such a lovable guy. I mean, how could God not love me and, and not forgive me? And then I read this verse and realized, no, it's not, God doesn't forgive me because he loves me. Yes, he loves me, but that's not why he forgives me. He forgives me according to what John said, because he's faithful, he keeps his promises, and he's just. What? justice? How can, my, how can forgiveness for me equate justice from God? Only because of Jesus. Only because of what Jesus did. And because of what Jesus did, because Jesus bore the punishment for my crime, God is a holy just judge. He will not hold me accountable for that same crime. He will not try me again for the sins that Jesus has paid for me in my place. And this is what it means to experience the righteousness of God and to receive his justice. Amos 9, 12, the Lord has spoken and he will do these things. He's a righteous God. He's a justice God. And he sent his son to stand for us and to take the fall for us so that we can have his righteousness and that we can now live lives for justice, for truth, to make a difference around us. Let's pray together this morning.